0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: I remember graduating, getting ready to go into high school, and I had a 3.8 GPA. And I'm like, yo, pops, you know, I just want a car. You You help me get a car. And I'll never forget this day. He looked at the report card. He's ripped it in half, ripped it a few times. <laughs> Just laughing through it. He's like, man, no. He said, this is how you get what you want. And I'll never forget. He came in with a half a brick or half a kilo, whatever you guys want to call it, of uh, cocaine, and handed me my first pistol. And he said, "So if you want the car, then you go out and you earn it. And I remember from that day, I never forget, I was like, wow, who does that? Who says that to the 16-year-old to the, you know, son? But then there was a part of me that was excited because I'm like, for the first time, I was like, shit, I get an opportunity now to actually build this relationship with my dad.
0: Hey there, friends, it's Light Watkins, and you're listening to At the End of the Tunnel, which is the podcast about a lot of things, hope, perseverance. But if I had to name one thing that all of my guests have in common, it's that at some point along their life path, they said yes to what was in their heart. And that's when they discovered that the light at the end of that metaphorical dark tunnel was inside of them all along. But sometimes they had to go through hell in order to be able to see it. And this week, I'm speaking to someone who had to die in order to find his light. Like literally, he was shot in the craziest of circumstances. He flatlined. He obviously recovered, but he was a changed person and he went on to become a mentor and he set up a nonprofit in South Central Los Angeles called Share Necessities, which helps teach and inspire underprivileged and at-risk kids, various mindfulness, yoga, and social responsibility practices. His name is Arjuna O'Neill. Arjuna is a Detroit native. He grew up in the Hare Krishna community, but his dad, who was also Hare Krishna, was one of the biggest drug dealers in town. And when Arjuna came of age, he began working in the family business, sometimes with his dad, sometimes at odds with his dad. And let's just say there was a little bit of tension at the family gatherings, and there may have even been a bounty or two placed on Arjuna's head by his own father at certain points during his life as a drug dealer. Anyway, everything came to a head one night when Arjuna was shot. He found himself lying on the floor, bleeding out, and he had this revelation that his purpose on earth was not ending. In fact, it was just beginning. And when Arjuna recovered over the next couple of years, he turned a new leaf and he began helping instead of hurting. And he used his street smarts and his spiritual foundation to help young people before they were devoured by the streets. And they could relate to Arjuna because he knew that life. And so his mission was able to grow quickly from one person himself into a flock of volunteers. And eventually he started a community center in South Central L.A. As you'll soon hear, Arjuna is one of the best storytellers I've had on the podcast and I've had some pretty great ones. So get ready to hear some of the craziest stories about the life of drugs and abuse and what it's like to get shot and recover from a near-death experience and of course, how he found redemption. So put on your seatbelts, ladies and gents, and I present to you the founder of Share Necessities and most recently, Mind Elevation, Mr. Arjuna O'Neill. Brother Arjuna, welcome to At the End of the Tunnel. I'm so grateful and honored to have you here and uh, to have you share your story with my audience. To kick things off, I usually like to start off talking about childhood. And my first question to you is when you were a kid, Arjuna, thinking back to the earliest days. What was your favorite toy or activity? What comes to heart and mind right
1: off the bat without overthinking it? Outdoors. The the okay.
0: the connection with nature. What kind of connection are you referring to? Were you by yourself with your friends? Like what were you doing outdoors exactly? Yeah, well,
1: my childhood started in the inner city of Detroit, which growing up on on the east side of Detroit was mostly Toxicity, drugs. I grew grew up in the era, the war on drugs era, violent crime, all that stuff that we hear about in most inner cities that are deprived of resources. And so, but I left while I was still a child and we moved to uh, West Virginia. Uh, My family was practicing the Hare Krishna faith. If you're not familiar with that practice, it's uh, a faith that comes from India, spiritual practice that comes from India. And most people identify with it as Hinduism. So we moved to West Virginia to be a part of a temple there. My um, mom left my dad when I was one. And so she joined the temple that was off grid out in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia. And so there was a lot of trees in nature. Different version of Detroit, though. And as a as a kid who was around trauma my whole life, so I was born into it. When I was, my mom was six months pregnant with me, my dad had handcuffed her to the bed rail, beat her, abused her, raped her. And so that trauma started for me before I even left the womb. Even being born into the world, I felt like when I was out in the trees in nature, even as a little boy, there was a connection where I felt this sense of freedom and this sense of belonging. I was one of those kids that I I, and for some reason, my mom would always tell me I hated to come in the house. Like I would freak out, cry, throw tantrums. And I was cool as long as I was just outside. I didn't have to be gone anywhere, but just out in nature in the trees.
0: Let's talk a little bit about Hare Krishna for those people who aren't familiar or who have a sort of stereotypical concept of what it means to be in a Hare Krishna community. This practice is a practice that it didn't matter what your
1: spiritual origin was or what your faith was. This was like the glue. This was that practice that you add this to whatever you're doing and your life becomes sublime or like your life becomes complete. Culturally, it didn't make sense to me, but the way I understood it was that, or the way my father taught it to me because he found the religion through university introduced it to my mom mm. and somehow he found a way to use the practice as a tool to control and manipulate and so my connection to it was was pretty it was misconstrued i never really understood it for for years but as a grown up now looking back when i when i see the practice and what, is, what does it mean the underlying takeaway is god consciousness I'm here to be a servant or serve
0: God. Your name, Arjuna, is a popular name in that Hindu tradition. What did you understand about the meaning or significance of your name as a child? Well, I was told who Arjuna
1: was. And then growing up in the faith, we were taught from the Bhagavad Gita. Not really sure how many translations, but it's one of the most translated spiritual books in the world is from what I've been told. So many different renditions of it, so many different versions of it. And the whole premise of the book was a story between God and his best friend, who was Arjuna, who was a spiritual warrior. He was an archer. So he was known for his bow and arrow. Mm -hmm. And they were on his battlefield. And God had told Arjuna, look, we got to do some things that may not rub you the right way. Arjuna's family was evil. They weren't of good. And so Arjuna was supposed to make some changes by he had to kill some of his 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 relatives. And so the way the Bhagavad Gita is explained, it's in today's time, the battle that was happening on this battlefield is supposed to be a perspective of our minds.
0: There's an ongoing dialogue between Arjuna and and God. Yes. And it's interesting. Because when I've heard you give talks before, when we've had conversations before, and I heard you tell your story, yeah. the way you tell your own story is like an ongoing dialogue between you and God. Yeah. I don't know if you realize that, or if that's conscious or not, but very, very conscious. It's of it. it's a carbon copy of what you would read in the Bhagavad Gita. So. That's just an aside that I find that I'm I'm making that connection right now that I find really, really interesting. And so what ritually speaking, what what does it mean to be a part of the Hare Krishna community? Are you out on the corners? Are you worshiping on a certain day? What what happens? How does it work? Well, one way
1: to give uh, someone from the outside a glimpse inside is, you know, each spiritual group has their own formula, their own practices. and, And one just like if you think about Christianity or Jehovah's witnesses, where they go out and they push their message, you know, um, some knock on doors and some congregate on corners, you know, there's different ways that they put the message out. And so you have different teams. And so in the heart Krishna world, they have, they have the different groups that would either go out, what they would call chanting. The term is called Hari Nam, which is chanting these mantras and mantra mind. Right. And so these monitors are supposed to liberate your mind. Then they have a team that goes out and they give away what they would call spiritually blessed food to people. It could be anybody, homeless or whatever. And so all these different practices are different ways that connect you to your higher self, to God. And growing up, you really just went with the flow. So I just went with the flow. I followed the protocol because at the time, you know, know, when we were in the movement, there was like maybe two other black families. And so I, I started experiencing the prejudice and the racism and the uh, emotional neglect and abuse early
0: on. And this was in West Virginia or yeah. Detroit? Both. Like I said, as early as I can remember. Okay. And you recognized it as something was a little bit off.
1: Yeah, because, you know, when you're a child, you know, when you think about childhood, you know, the innocence of a child or how a child comes into this world, you know, a child doesn't come into the world with any of the, the concepts or the thinking that we have as we get older, once we experience certain things. And so having that, that purity as a child of just wanting to feel love and be that expression of love and joy. So as a child, you know, the energy that I was receiving when I would move mm. around throughout the temple or be at certain festivals and different things, it didn't match what was what I was feeling. It didn't support it. It wasn't like a connection. And when you think about, Children And when they, you know, family functions, you know, that child will hang out with certain relatives in the house. And in that one relative that walks in the room, the, the child just bursts in tears. And everybody's always wondering, like, you know, we laugh at it now, right? Mm-hmm. We we'll laugh and say, oh, she doesn't, or she thinks, or he's scared of you or his uncle or his aunt, whoever it is. But there's always something there. And so that's the experience I was having. And I was always trying to explain that and express that to my mom. But I didn't have the, the words to articulate it at the time.
0: My understanding was that you grew up in Detroit. So, did you guys eventually move back to Detroit at some point?
1: Yes, the temple in West Virginia collapsed. So, that, that's okay. a whole nother conversation. I, I, I'm not going to get into all that right now, but there was a lot of things that, you, you know, the stories, the demise that we hear about, a lot of different spiritual groups or religions or whatever you want to classify it, but it collapsed at one point. With some things that were happening behind the scenes that weren't spiritually founded.
0: What did you enjoy or look forward to within the community? Were there any rituals that you liked or any people that you connected with that you really, that left you feeling in a better or positive space?
1: Not necessarily, because that's where I experienced my first, through the temple lifestyles where I experienced my first encounter with being sexually abused as a little boy.
0: Your first encounter. Yes.
1: And so the temple lifestyle was set up more of like, like you you hear about the Buddhists they have ashrams and so what happened mm-hmm. was all the parents would focus on working you know doing the things that needed to be done to keep the temple moving forward and so all mm-hmm. the kids they put them in what they would call an ashram where they would learn we would learn the spiritual teachings and the practices early so they would teach us but like i said i was treated a certain way so the only time i actually felt any type of joy is when I I would be able to get out and get
0: into the woods. Did that ever come out that you had been sexually abused or you kind of held it to yourself?
1: Well, what happened was it came out in a way that not only did my story get revealed, it came out that all the kids that were in this ashram from the girls Mm -hmm. and the boys, it was like a massive story. And that's what caused it to shut down for a moment.
0: So you guys relocated back to Detroit? Yes.
1: I was still a little boy. Moved back to Detroit on the east side with family. And so that contrast, those two different dualities of life were totally two different ways of being. But also, here it is, I'm supposed to be in this spiritual community and I'm experiencing a completely different type of violence, type mm-hmm. of suppression. It didn't look like it did in Detroit, but then to come back from that and then go back to Detroit and catch it from a whole nother wave, you know, As a kid, I didn't know who and where to start. I didn't know who to talk to, what to talk about. And so that turned into the psychological and emotional uh, damage.
0: Where were you being schooled? The
1: temple had their own school system, their whole their whole education system. They had their whole philosophy of life. They had mm-hmm. more like, you, you know, the Amish community or they have their whole way of doing things. And then when we went back to Detroit, I integrated back into everyday life, public mm-hmm. schools, work, going to the doctor, things that, you know, we do in, in the mainstream
0: world. And were you still a vegetarian in your public school in Detroit?
1: Born and raised one. And the price that I had to pay. I was just a kid, you know, and back then vegetarianism wasn't even something that was even talked about, especially in the inner city. And now remember this faith comes from a Hindu culture. So I'm going to school with food that doesn't even look like anybody else's. I'm bringing my own lunch. So the cuisines were different. The food was, you know, the, and kids would laugh at me, poke at me. And I remember I would always have a fight at lunch.
0: Would you be on the corners and stuff doing your bhakti devotional practices in Detroit and your friends, school friends would see you and would you feel any kind of way about that?
1: As I got a little older, yes, I would go out. My dad would force me to go out and, and, (laughs) you know, and it never failed. There was always one of the homies would come. Come down the street. (laughs) You know, you could see, and I'm supposed to be focused on what's happening, but I'm too busy watching the cars who could see me. And you would hear your name yelled, and and, you know, you go back to the block, and and the homies were like, "Man, I thought I saw you out there, you you know, with the drums jumping and beating the drums." But my dad didn't hide it. Mm -hmm. So everybody in my community kind of knew of it, but they didn't know what it was
0: exactly. so your dad somehow made his way back into your life at that point in time.
1: He was always a part of the spiritual community. Him and my mom separated, but that's the only time we would, we would mostly see each other when I was young at the temple. They both shared the same practice, but they lived two completely different lifestyles. When my mom met my dad, he portrayed to be a very spiritual conscious guy, but she didn't know at the time he was part of one of the biggest cartels in the city of Detroit. And so he used his spiritual knowledge as a way, like I said, to manipulate and coerce and control. And so Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, that's what it was. Hustle, you know, dis- distribute, you know, take over, manipulate, demise, all of that stuff that comes with that lifestyle. And I seen everything, all the stereotypes, what you see in the movies, prostitution, preparation, homicides.
0: He was grooming you to an extent.
1: Yeah, so... One thing I want to point out is that when you hear stories about people that come from the inner city or people that have had this this past with drugs, you know, selling drugs or being a dealer. A lot of times you hear people say, well, this is all I knew and this is in my environment. But I was raised to be next on the throne. So it's a difference because now you're being taught this. This is the way of life. And so how my dad did it, he made it look like what we were doing was part of the spiritual practice. Like God was okay with it because every Sunday we would show up at the temple, chant and pray together. Right. And then I never seen him go through none of the things that all the other dealers were going through. I never seen him get arrested. Never seen him get shot at. I never seen him fall off. And so the correlation that I had was like, okay, he told me like, look, we do what we do Monday through Saturday, Sunday, we pray, offer it all up to God. And that's how you cleanse So what I thought that I was doing was honoring my name. I thought I was honoring my father. I thought I was honoring the path.
0: What were some of those life lessons or lessons of the game that he was imparting to you back then when you were an early teen? Some of the things that
1: we deal with every day in life, trust, don't trust anybody. Some of the things he imparted to me was you can't trust people. So that, that, what does that do? That creates fear, There was a savage mentality. You didn't do things to help other people get ahead. You made sure you got ahead. That teaches you as you get older, be selfish, inconsiderate, no compassion. He taught me the values of that would make you, I guess, a successful street person. But an everyday society person,
0: no, complete opposite. Did you notice any hypocrisy in in what he was teaching you about the street life versus what you all were celebrating on Sundays in the temple?
1: Again, like I said, you felt it. And to help anybody understand that's listening, who may not understand the background, but it's no different than when you go into a a relationship, right? We all understand the concepts of relationships. And there's that nudge you get on the inside when you feel like the other person's lying to you or you've been cheated on or something. That discomfort, Mm -hmm. there's just that unease. You may not be able to articulate it right away, but you feel it. And so I felt I felt it every time.
0: I guess what I'm asking is you'd already been betrayed by the Hare Krishna community. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering, who did you trust? Did you trust your dad, who you now understood was abusive towards your mom? Or did you trust the community that sexually abused you? Like, who, who- <laughs> I was a lone soldier. I didn't trust anybody. It,
1: it affected me years and years later because I didn't trust anybody. Right? So I'm watching every, everybody suspect to me. Even your mom? Everybody. Because even my dad taught me that my mom was a suspect. Mm -hmm. Right, because remember, she left him. Nobody had ever left him. Nobody had ever stood up to him. He had multiple kids, multiple women. You know that that lifestyle.
0: And you didn't recognize at the time that that was actually a a show of strength on her part.
1: No, but me and my mom have always been close. Mm -hmm. We're still close. Just celebrated her birthday yesterday. One of my greatest teachers. Her journey, her story, what I seen her persevere through. But I didn't understand it as a kid.
0: And you had no one, no mentors, no, no one, no grandparents, no, no one that you could go to and open up to. And No, my mom lost her mom on my
1: first birthday. She passed away that night. Her dad grew up in the South when he was a little boy. He drunk from the white man's water fountain, was sexually abused and tortured in jail. So when he grew up, he just repeated that cycle, which the whole family suffered from different psychological issues. There wasn't anybody to turn to. And then growing up in school and some of my behaviors, the way I acted out, you know, you get labeled, you got put in the box. Oh, he's this, he's that, he's that. Nobody really ever asked me, none of my life, what's, I never was asked, hey, Arjuna, what happened to you? What are you going through? It was, I was just a label. I showed a certain behavior and I got categorized and I got placed. And that had been my life
0: for. So you were seen as a troubled student.
1: Yes. I was not even just a troubled student. I was a troubled troubled (laughs) human being is how they labeled me. It got to the point where I got kicked out of all Detroit public schools. right? When you think of Detroit, like how do you get kicked out of a Detroit <laughs> public school? Something happened in, uh, I think it was fourth grade. So the Bhagavad Gita, the story that we're talking about between Krishna and Arjuna, is a battle. But back then, you know, from a spiritual perspective, we're just from back in those days, they didn't have guns. So all the stories were about swords and knives and beheadings. And so... One day in school, a kid picked on me because of the way I looked. I had the little ponytail in my head with the Mm shaved head. I remember he kept pulling it. And I told him I wasn't raised to fist fight. I was only taught the Bhagavad Gita. So it was from the warrior aspect. So in my mind, I thought everything was okay. Well, I was like, hey, I got to chop this dude's head off. I got to fulfill this Arjuna warrior role here. So I go to school. At the time, we were living with my mom's sister. Her boyfriend had a machete and I took it to school. We were taking a test and I remember going into the book bag and I got ready to chop this guy's head off. And I remember the teacher looked up and she screamed so loud that it scared me and scared the guy. He I remember he wet his pants and I kept trying to explain to them that this is what I was taught. My mom understood it, but it didn't make sense to anybody else. As a kid, when you, you, you're trying to explain why you're doing what you're doing, and nobody got it. And, and, and then I'm being told all these things were going to happen to me. I was scared.
0: So you had the machete out in your hand, yeah. hand raised. You were about to chop the guy's head off. Yeah. Literally. Literally.
1: And so that went on my record. And that haunted me for the rest of my education. But I wasn't malicious. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a bad person. You know, I wasn't even violent. My whole life was structured around the way the Bhagavad Gita and the teachings of the Hare Krishna philosophy was. So I didn't even have the, 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 the normal street skills outside of what my dad was just showing me about the streets.
0: Well, I'm sure nobody pulled your hair again after
1: that, <laughs> after that incident. No, <laughs> I seen the guy years, many years later, we saw <laughs> each other in the streets. And at this time, we both were successful street hustlers. And there was this moment where I was at the gas station late night and he looked and I looked at him and we we knew, but it was like no words were said. It was just kind of like we're just going to keep going our separate ways. You got kicked out of school
0: at that time. How old were you?
1: I think I was in the fourth grade, fifth grade, fourth grade. I was maybe like 10, nine or 10. So we had to move to Atlanta for a few years. and, And the story continued.
0: Did you get back into school in Atlanta or that that record followed you everywhere you went?
1: It followed me, but I was able to go to school in Atlanta. But what they did was they put me on like very strict special education. I had to have like two to three counselors. Like they treated me
0: like I was a a mental patient, a psych patient. Right. They search your bag every day and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. You had to sit next. My desk was always next to the teacher. Like it was was rough. It was rough, man. And all the things that would make a person want to hate, hate the world, hate people, do things to people. I experienced Mm. it early on. Mm -hmm. So to live a life where every day you're shown that the world does not care about you, that you're not loved, that you're not enough, that you are the actual problem. But yet I'm constantly being taught that I'm supposed to love, that I'm supposed to be compassionate, that I'm supposed to serve God. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but everything about my life, I'm like, well, where where is this God? Like, why has this
0: happened? At that point in time, when they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Well, how did you envision your life playing out from there? What did you see yourself doing? Did you have any aspirations? How did you view success? That's a powerful question, and I love it. How did? You and I'm talking it? about from that point in your life, not yeah. from now looking back. There wasn't a how do you see your life?
1: There wasn't a future. I wasn't taught that, hey, one day you can. It was just how I was raised. My dad was, you live this life now. You do what I say to do. You do what I ask of you. You meet these marks in these streets. I'll reward you. Spend some time with you. You get to be around your brothers. You'll feel some sense of family. There wasn't any long-term, hey, when you get older. I didn't reach that until I got older. Mm -hmm. And then what I realized is now when we talk about what, you you know, you're successful, I didn't, I had no recollection of what that meant.
0: Did you see your dad as being successful as a hustler?
1: I wouldn't call it successful. Out of all the things that I saw in in Detroit, I just saw him as someone who somehow was fortunate. <clears throat> because, not, like I said, he lived the similar life as a lot of people in Detroit, but he was he didn't go through what most people went through. I didn't see, like I said, I, he never experienced. He never been to jail. He never went to jail. Nobody ever harmed him. But the way he told the story was that because of his spiritual practices is what made him invincible to the streets. And so now I'm starting to believe that part.
0: What was his spiritual practice exactly that he's referring to?
1: He would chant. He would chant the mantras that I would see in the temple. He would read the Bhagavad Gita. He would. Re- he knew the Bhagavad Gita back to front, front to mm-hmm. back. He could quote the verses. He was powerful with his spiritual practice. He was so good at it that even when he would go into the temple, they didn't even question.
0: Did he have a legitimate job and on top of selling drugs? No. Was he open about the fact that he's, he was a hustler? No. So no one really asked questions. So he was like
1: six, seven. He was a big guy. Nobody really. that that was why I say what I say, because nobody questioned him. I, I, even in the temple, people knew that he wasn't, quote unquote, you know, this advanced spiritual person, but the way he carried himself, the things that he would do you know he 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 put fear in a lot of people <clears throat> like for example one night he decided to go on the side of the temple at the parking where everybody parks the cars and he pulled out his uzi and he let off a whole clip he did things in a way where it would make you think twice if you wanted to pry into his his life hmm.
0: hey there really quickly you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. Because I've been to the Hare Krishna temple in Los Angeles before mm-hmm. on Watseka on Sundays. I've been a part of that whole thing. It's a really beautiful, peaceful everyone's like in communion and fellowship, that would be a very odd scene to have somebody pull out an Uzi and, <laughs> and let off a whole clip yeah. in the middle of that. Are you basically saying that's what happened with your dad? Yeah.
1: Two things he would always do. He kept everybody in fear, but he did things in a way where it looked like he was following the philosophy. So he would bring all, he would come into the temple with groups of, of the homies, with the streets. Remember, there aren't any black people really in the movement. So he would show up, 10 guys, five guys. He'd bring all the family. And so they looked rough. They looked different. So nobody really, and, and, and what he would share was, that, hey, I'm bringing people to be exposed to this, this practice. That was how he played it. And he did, though. Like, a part of him really believed that he was doing his spiritual duty by exposing people to the practice, but yet his behavior and his lifestyle didn't match.
0: ultimately led you to the hustling life at 15 years old. Can you talk a little bit about that, your entree into that lifestyle?
1: Well, I, I was always a smart kid. I was always advanced than most kids in, in, in my age group. And so what my dad wanted was me to be more like him. And how he did it was he made me feel like the only way That I could actually have time with him, spend time with him, was that I had to show him how to use my education or my my smarts to advance in the streets. And so I remember graduating, getting ready to go into high school, and I had a 3.8 GPA. And I'm like, yo, Pops, you know, I, I just want a car. You know, you help me get a car. And I'll never forget this day. He looked at the report card, he's ripped it in half, ripped it a few times. Just laughing through it. He's like, man, no. He said, This is how you get what you want. And I never forget he came in with a half a brick or half a kilo, whatever you guys want to call it, of uh cocaine, and handed me my first pistol. And he said, So if you want the car, and you go out and you earn it, I never forget. I was like, wow, who does that? Who says that to the you know, (laughs) to the, you know, 16 year old son. It didn't seem abnormal to the extent that that's what all my brothers, that's what everybody was doing. But again, that internal, that, that inner was like, man, nah, this
0: ain't it. Where did he go to get the brick of cocaine? Where was it exactly? Did he go unlock a safe somewhere or was it in a closet? I was in my room. So we had that conversation
1: in the evening and then the next morning, that's how he woke me up. He threw it at me. He threw it in the bed. I remember, <laughs> I remember because when he threw. It, when he threw it, okay. it. It hit me in the rib. Mm-hmm. In the pain, like I, I thought he broke something. Mm-hmm. He tossed it across the room. He's like, and he threw a half a kilo. And he threw the, the gun. But then there was a part of me that was excited because I'm like, for the first time, I was like, shit, I get an opportunity now to actually build this relationship with my dad.
0: So it wasn't even about selling drugs. It was about just no. getting closer to your dad. That was the way to get close to your, your yeah. Yeah. role model. Yeah.
1: Because in the midst of all that, hanging out with him and him showing me the streets, ice cream trucks, all the stuff, you know, I'm a kid. So, you know, he wads money, like whatever we want to do, street fairs. So he pacified me with all of the little, the little low hanging fruits, you know, anything that right. the kid wants. And that felt good. So I didn't really make a big deal about going on the rides and the ride alongs and all the different things, even though I saw things that didn't feel good. They, and, you know, I seen things that were scared of the average person, but I also was like, I get to be with my dad and then all the little things that come with it. i just tune that stuff out.
0: Did you feel competent in flipping that brick of cocaine, like how to do that and how to stay safe in doing so and all of those things or?
1: It's like that relationship, like that girl or that guy, you always want And there's a part of you where you'll tell yourself, I'll do whatever it takes to get that person. That relationship that I wanted with my dad, I knew that I had enough drive, enough charisma to figure it out. I knew that I had enough in me to impress him. Now, I didn't know exactly what that entailed until I had those real experiences. Now You can have an idea about something. You can have an idea of how you want to approach something. But then when you hit that real experience, what it opens you up to. That's where the real shift happened because I, I had to become something that I actually wasn't.
0: So what was your first step in that direction towards becoming a drug dealer?
1: Well, I wanted to show my dad that I was with the ships. He took me on a ride along. He stopped by his, 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 his spots. He picked up his money where, he you know, along the trail uh, who he sold to. We went to a guy's house and the guy owed him some money. And I remember my dad being upset. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, ah, this is my moment. I'm going to collect for my dad. He doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to show him that I can do this. And so later on that night, I remember putting on a wig and a housecoat and I got on a bike. I had a 10 speed at the time. Whose wig
0: did you put on your mom's?
1: My grandmother's. I was staying with my dad, so I, I'm now I'm I'm staying with my dad, <laughs> sorry. which he okay. just took. Yeah, you know I love you know my stories are they're fun. You can laugh because it, <laughs> I laugh through them, even when I hear myself think about this stuff. You have to. Uh, okay, but, <laughs> sorry, no, it's all good. <laughs> so I'm living with I'm living with his mom because nobody knew where he laid his head. So I'm staying with his mom, mm-hmm. which is my grandmother mm-hmm. who's deceased now. I put on her wig. Because I just, you know, I, I knew I wanted to look different. I just knew that it from, you know, watching movies and reading stories about how to just camouflage yourself or, or disguise yourself. So I, I put on the disguise and I remember I, I rolled up to the house and I had a 357 <laughs> and I could see the shadows in the house. I seen people and I remember I just pulled the trigger and let off a few shots. in the air, no, in the house, into the house, I hit the house. I was trying to hit the shadow. Why were you trying to to shoot the guy? Because you had had, a conversation with him already. No, that i just heard my dad's conversation with, with the guy. I was there, I was standing there, you know, he saw me and I was in the room while they were having the conversation. But again, I'm doing it the way I think the streets work, right? Mm -hmm. I don't really know how this works. This is my first, remember you asked me, how did I get there? So this was my, this was me. Seeing if this was me introducing myself to this life, seeing
0: if I really had what it took. And you already knew how to shoot a gun or was that your first time shooting a gun? No, I knew how to shoot a gun. So you well, shoot into the house, shooting to the house. The
1: shadow moves. It hits. It just drops. Right. I, I see it standing up and then I see the shadow go hit the ground. Well, the next day, my dad gets a phone call from the guy and he says, man, come get all your money. I got it. We go. You know i'm excited because i know what happened right i I know why the guy's calling i didn't kill him thank god but when i get there what happens is he tells my dad hey man i'm sorry i got your money and then he's like he didn't blame my dad but he's like i don't know somebody came and they shot into my house he says and uh just so happened i happened to bend over to pick my daughter up and the bullet missed me i remember trembling in my in my book in my shoes like whoa like how could have killed this guy or i could have killed his daughter and I was like, okay, rule number one, no drive-bys. One thing I won't do is just shoot randomly. I said, if it's ever going to be an instance where I have to use a gun, it's got to be face-to-face. So what I realized was there's two versions of this street life. There's that pretend you know, Hollywood version where you, you see the things in the movies, and then there's that, that mobster life when you watch Narcos or stuff like that, where you hear how they really make moves happen. And so I had to ask myself, how serious do you want to be, Arjuna? Like how deep do you want to go down this rabbit hole in order to have this relationship
0: with your father? Did you ever tell him that you were the one that shot into the window? He knew it.
1: He knew it. It was like this proud father moment. He looked over at me and he had this smirk on his face. He mm-hmm. never, we never had a full, we never had a full conversation about it, but it, it was like this nod he gave me like, okay, I see you. you're ready. And then he sent, me on, he sent me on my first real big assignment. Okay. Which was why <laughs> <laughs> you got everybody well, sitting
0: on the edge of their yeah. seats.
1: Let's just say uh, <laughs> I had enough drugs to probably get three natural life sentences. So mm-hmm. he started me out with just, I was a driver, new license, no tickets, nothing. So I would drive and move massive amounts. Yeah. You know, and I, so I remember I have a, I have brothers, I have, I have like seven or eight brothers that are older than me. I was the youngest. And all I can remember was like how I want to advance when I, I want to get past him. I need to do things in a way that it's cutting edge, smart. And so now what's interesting like is my spiritual practice started to somehow I integrated it in this lifestyle. So then I came up with my own rules. I didn't hurt people, Mm -hmm. right? But at the same time, I'm hurting people, right? But I didn't consciously go out and hurt people for no reason. I had compassion, you know, I took care of kids. I took care of single moms that were on drugs. Like, I remember being told one day, because I didn't, on Sundays I would be at the temple. And one day I was at one of my locations speaking to some of the people where I would distribute my drugs and, they made a joke like you're the only drug dealer I know who goes to church on Sunday. <laughs> you know, and at the time when the woman first said it, I was like, wait, damn, that's a hell of a contradiction, right? Like, how am I a drug dealer? But I'm known for being at church and I'm known in the streets for being in church on Sunday. And a part of me was like, whoa, I felt it. I was like, at some point, that's going to catch up with you. Arjuna. And so I, I thought, well, OK, well, then you need to advance.
0: You need to get this moving. You need to get to the top as fast as you can. What does the top look like from that scene in Detroit? Like, what, what do you imagine the top? What are you aspiring to? At that time, when you say the top, there
1: were individuals that you would see that the way they would move through the streets, it was as if they had a cape on. Mm-hmm. Right. They could go anywhere and they got respect. And I used to marvel, like, how can one man control a whole neighborhood or a whole side of a town where this person is evil, corrupt, but somehow they have so much power in the streets that no one ever would challenge them. This person could be outnumbered and taken down. And I was like, man, how do I reach that? How do I get to a point where as a solo being, You would question yourself if you decided to do anything or approach me in any way. And so that's what I considered to be the top. And so the term that we use is I just kept putting in the work. And then I got to a place where what I learned was that my dad never really cared in a sense. Because when you step back and you look at it, you're like, well, how could you say you love your kids? Or how could you say you love your son if this is what you're teaching them? This is where you're putting them. And so that reality became real one day me and my dad decided to have a conversation about growing i was like hey dad i've I've reached this level i'm ready to create my own entourage my own group and he was like no it don't work like that you only do what you do through me and i'm like i'm you know i know the numbers now i see how this system works you know and i've built this courage up in myself i've built this level of mindset so i'm like pops don't work like that you're making all the money so I did the ultimate. What you don't do, you see it in all the movies. I went directly to the connect. How old were you? Somewhere eighteen, between 18 and
0: 20. Were you in school, at high school? Did you drop out of school? Like You were a 3.8 grade point average student. What happened yeah. to that?
1: Never dropped out of school. Kept going. I had a, a way about myself that I carried myself in such a debonair way, in such a a, a very suave, you know, I, I took on some of my dad's characters, very, very smooth, but manipulative. And, and what I did was I would just go into the class. The teachers understood that something was different about me, but I had a way of using my words and I, I would just get my work in advance. I would tell a story, hey, teacher, this is what's going on in my life, dah, 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 dah. get the work in advance, turn it all in at the end of the week. And that's how I did it. I never stopped going to school. I never stopped educating myself either.
0: So you were doing the schoolwork during the day and the street work. <laughs> during the day i mixed it all up. during the day <laughs> okay so you you went to the connect and what happened then well
1: money talks this guy was my dad's childhood friend so he, you know he broke it down he says look technically i should kill you mm. he said but i've been watching you and i've always had this about me where people f- were fond of my personality like i was different mm. And now I realize what it was. It was it was the spiritual practices that were in rooted in me, but I didn't know it at the time. And so he's like, hey, I'm going to do this. But you know what this means? And you know where this is going to change your relationship, he says. But. If you're willing to go there.
0: Put your money on the table. And now, wasn't he risking retaliation from your dad by doing cutting that deal with you? Not necessarily, because he in the streets, you
1: understand. There's a part where money takes that. And that's what we hear about all the time. You know, how money corrupts, how money changes the way we do things, how we allow money to influence. And so from that perspective, it was like, well, the money was there. So from a street perspective, he had his money. His money was together.
0: And as far as he was concerned, that conflict was between you and your dad. He didn't really care where the money came from.
1: Yeah. And And that's how it works. It's like, hey, this is between you and your people. As long as you're good here, we're good. I have nothing to mm-hmm. do with what happens outside. once you walk out of this door. And sure enough, I got the phone call.
0: I'm sure you called your dad right away.
1: Oh, man, I got the phone call. <laughs> what happened from there, man, my dad put a hit out on me. What does that mean exactly? I defied all orders. He put a hit out on me like, hey, bring them to me dead or alive. I had a bounty on my head by my own dad. And so this played out for about two or three years. We would see each other in the streets. At lights, he'd pull out a gun, I'd pull out mine. Or at the temple, he'd see my mom. And it got real when he told my mom one Sunday, he saw her in front of the temple. They both went on a Sunday. And he told her, he says, hey, when I see your son, I'm killing him. And she cried. And she didn't know how to tell me that he told her those words. And I wasn't even mad that he said he was going to kill me. The fact that she shed a tear. From that point forward, my relationship with my dad it was war all out war because one thing that i did know through my whole journey like is that my mom never left me hanging even though my dad said things about her and even though i was living with him for a time my mom has always been to this date a spiritually loving compassionate kind person even though she had her challenges her drama her stories but she always
0: practiced what she preached had you developed that trust in your mom at that point cuz earlier you said you did not trust your mom no
1: at that time, I had developed it, but I didn't trust her because she had to turn me in, where I was admitted to the mental hospital when I was 16 for an incident that happened between my dad and I. And I told the therapist, and the therapist asked me, "Well, would you ever hurt your dad?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm angry enough to hurt him." She says, "Well, how?" I said, "With this Glock that I have on my hip." And at that time, I just, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking that I'm just being able. I'm like, "This is my counselor. you can be honest, right?" <laughs> <laughs> And I didn't know. So she, you know, as soon as I left out, she hit the button. And so my mom gets a phone call. It's like, hey, your son is armed and dangerous. You got less than 24 hours to turn him in. If we find him, we might kill him. Mm -hmm. So my mom called me, whatever. And I ended up getting admitted. And I turned 17 in the institution because I was so angry. So to have that experience and to be put in a padded room and be in a straitjacket. And through all this whole story and everything we're talking about, The only thing that I can tell you that was really wrong with me like was just that I was hurt, deeply hurt and abandoned. Like I didn't feel like I had anybody. That was it. But just from those two feelings, I was able to fuel myself in a way that made me dangerous. I was a different kind of dangerous.
0: Between you and your dad was one of you bluffing. Like, why didn't why did it take so long? You said two or three years. You guys were chasing each other around like Pacino and and De Niro and Heat yeah what happened was
1: i realized i was the first person that was able to get behind my dad's card like i was the first one that actually got to see him see him right Mm -hmm. no one else could get close enough to he never let anybody get close enough to him to really read his true demeanor i figured it out from going to therapists being locked up in an institution i learned a different psychology and so i was able to get inside and then once i was able to get inside his head i was like oh you're a normal human being like everybody else. Mhm. You just have a damn good mask. And once I figured that out, I for me it was now it was joy because I'm like all those years of what I watched you do to my mom. So I I actually let it carry on. I thrived off of letting my brothers and sisters see how I would put my dad in this state of fear cuz he he told my older brother like I think I created a monster. <laughs> and he didn't know how to turn me off. But then, mm-hmm. you know, it gets good to you, right? Your intention was to do this, but then there's that power that comes with it. Then there's this, the voids of the hurt and the suffering. I started feeding that through, the, through, through our interactions, through the fear that I saw in him.
0: So all that is happening in the background. Yeah, you're 19 years old, and you're in your apartment with your girlfriend, or some woman you were dating, or what was that? How you explain that relationship again? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's very complicated. (laughs) Yeah, uh, me uh, and and
1: this young lady. As you fast forward to this moment that you're getting ready, we're getting ready to drop into. uh, I had a team this young lady was part of that team. And I compromised, I broke one of the the protocols. I became intimate with her and then we shared that space. From a street perspective, you usually don't mix that because it can turn into something where either you compromise or you find yourself in a situation where you let your emotions get in the way of that lifestyle. So that's what happened. And my dad, at this time, we, we didn't really resolve our issue but we understood that if we worked together, we could do far more greater things than fight. Mm -hmm. And so somehow naturally we ended up getting back in, in flow and we joined forces. And he called me to go to pick up something to see something. And I remember telling him like, look, but I always had this thing like, man, I shouldn't mess with him. And I did. And so, my dad called and he asked me Mm -hmm. to come. And I told him, I said, Hey, look, the time that you're asking me to come, doesn't look good. You know, I let him know where I was the situation I was in. I'm like, this don't look good for me to be getting up and leaving at three o'clock in the morning. I'm like, can we do this at a different time? He's like, no, do it now. And so at this time, you know, my relationship with the young lady wasn't the best. It wasn't a healthy relationship. It was a street life. And like I said, I was totally my emotional, intelligence was so low that I wasn't even able to read signs that I was hurting this woman or that she was upset. And she told me, she says, well, if you leave, stay at that woman's house, don't come back. And I'm like, I couldn't tell her because at the level of the game I was playing, you never disclosed when you picked up or dropped because that's how people get hit, robbed, killed. And so I had to make up a story and I was trying to tell my dad, I said, Hey, I got to get back. Well, he didn't honor what I asked. And so I ended up staying out all night. Stuff wasn't ready till the next day. And so I came back in her mind. I was out with a female and I remember coming back and, and I was so excited because I was like, I got what I needed, but she's pissed. And again, I told you, I was so disconnected from my own body, my own emotions, my own feelings that I didn't even register. Hers were completely
0: irate. She was hurt. And so
1: we had- And this
0: is before cell phones. You couldn't text. You, no one was texting anybody, right? It's just you had pagers or something, I'm assuming?
1: No, no. Cell phones were there. This is <laughs> right around that era when StarTech, di- we just got into the digital, okay, the digital phone. It was the basic digital phone. But- What happened was it didn't even matter. It didn't matter. She told me if I left and didn't come back, that's what she was going to believe. And so I remember coming back into the house and she was pissed and she started telling me how she felt. And I just looked at her and I was like, well, look, you can think what you want to think. This is where I'm at. This is what I did. And the conversation, it just shifted. And I remember her telling me, I kill you. A part of me was like, shit, go ahead. Like, really? Like, I really was like, it's cool. But then another part of me was like I didn't want to die, but I wanted to challenge it. I was so angry inside and so hurt that I would challenge any situation that could have taken me out. And so I told her, do what you got to do. So she went in the other room, grabbed the gun that I had in the drawer, pointed it at me. And when she realized she looked me in my eyes and when she realized that I was what we would say, oh, heartless or cold hearted. It scared her because she's got a gun pointed at me and I I showed no reaction. And so once she realized that that's what happened, she tried to uncock the gun, but didn't know how. And so when she was lowering the gun, it went off. Hit me in the lower app and the bullet exploded inside of me and ripped through my femoral artery and that's when life shifted for me completely i had an experience that changed my life forever when she
0: had the gun pointing at you what was your mindset
1: in that moment well when i looked down the barrel of the gun i was like this could be quick in my mind i'm like if she does this it's going to be quick because she's pointing it right at me right i'm just like how fast will it happen and then i'm like hmm. a part of me is like like i said i was so empty i had been carrying so much heaviness that i didn't think that she had the guts to do it but i also was open i was just open to the experience i didn't run from it and i found that to be very interesting in that moment
0: what does it feel like to get shot
1: <sighs> what does it feel like to get shot well i got shot with a 38 caliber long grained so it would be the Saturday night special edition. That's the one that you usually see the police officers have in their bootstrap in all the movies that backup. And if you wonder why they always use that as a backup, because it's a powerful caliber pistol, the long grain. And when it hit me, <laughs> it felt like a semi truck hit my body. Like I was up against a wall. And in that moment, I remember thinking, wow we definitely could have had a conversation about this. (laughs) Okay. I was like, shit, we could have talked about this. (laughs) That was the first thought. Like when it hit me, I was just like, damn, we could have talked about this. (laughs) We definitely could have worked this one out. And then I don't know why like, but I saw the look and hurt in her face for the first time. And I instantly had compassion. I was like, Damn. Oh, a part of my hurt, I saw it in her. So now I'm that, now I'm like, wait, it's starting to make sense what's happening here. Because I can register now where I'm at through her, through the look in her eye. And she was horrified that she did what she did. And so she decides to turn the gun on herself. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I said, hey, 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 in my mind, I'm like, wait. You can't kill yourself because if I make it and I can't explain why you're dead, <laughs> I'm not going to prison like this. Not in this condition. I'm not going to prison at
0: all, is what I'm telling myself. Are you on the floor? Are you on the couch? Did you get knocked back? Like, what's Man, your. I'm twisted up in the middle of the floor, laying in about two
1: inches of just hot blood and I'm bleeding. And I knew in that moment, I said, damn, this isn't like the movies. I said, this is it from going to school and understanding a little bit about anatomy and going to class and studying the body. And then I used to watch a lot of war movies and I remember private Ryan when he got hit in that artery. Mm -hmm. And so I instantly, I I started thinking, I said, I can't panic. And I knew that if my panic, the heart rate goes up, I'll bleed faster. I'm in the inner city. There's no telling when the ambulance will be here. So I got to go to work on myself. And so I remember putting my finger in the hole. And to put my own finger in my own body, shit just got real. I, I connected. It was a connection with myself now. And I'm like, man, here it is. And then I just started thinking, I don't have time to cry. I don't have time to think about all the shoulda, coulda, woulda's. But I was like, all right, I need to connect. And I remember meditation. My mom would meditate. My dad would meditate. You know, in the Hare Krishna movement, meditation was part of the practice. So I, I had my first real meditation by default, because I was trying to just calm down so I could prolong this bleed out situation that was happening. And in that moment, I remember telling her, I said, please, just give me a minute. Step back. I'm going to close my eyes, but I'm not dead. She didn't understand that because meditation wasn't something that you heard in the streets. So when I closed my eyes, she thought I was dying. And so I remember I kept smacking me like, wake up. And I'm like, st- I was like, hey, step back. Like, I need give me a minute. I got to connect with God. I was like, I got to make, I got to make some transitions here. If I'm going to go, I didn't want to go out. Right. If I, I, in my mind was, if I have to die, I can't die in this space of fear, panic or remorse, like feeling bad about myself. I said, if I want, if I'm going to go out, I need to go out in a state, in a higher consciousness of all the stuff that I was taught through the Bhagavad Gita. I need to raise my vibration. I at least need to die in a, in a God consciousness.
0: You probably sounded like you were hallucinating to her and you closing your eyes and talking about God like that may, probably made her think you were you were about to die. I, I, I can but understand that
1: something because she knew about the temple life You know,
0: because I was gone every Sunday.
1: That's when I went into that deep state and I had the conversation.
0: With God. Mm. Was there pain at that time during that conversation or had you transcended the pain? I transcended everything from the physical material plane,
1: the feeling. The space that I was in, it was that place I always wanted to be. It was that feeling that I always wanted to have from my mother, from my father. It was that love and and that comfort that I always wanted to have. And I had it in that moment. And I knew, but I didn't know if I was dead or not. I just knew that nothing hurt. Everything felt amazing. It was the most beautiful feeling I'd ever had. And I went from literally burning alive to most beautiful love felt like harmonious space and i remember talking to god i said hey god well this is it you know i apologize and i was like as good as this may be i said what about my mom i remember i just kept thinking about my mother i said what about my mom i've never seen her waver in her faith and her belief in her teachings this whole time and i said so if you can spare me for my mom's sake please but if you can't i understand and I remember being asked if I could forgive this woman for pulling the trigger. And in that moment, I was like, what do you mean, God forgive her? Like, damn, she just shot me. <laughs> like, that's a tall order right there. But a part of me knew that there was something more to this, 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 this opportunity, but I didn't understand what it was. And so in that time, in that moment, I thought, oh, he's just asking me to, you know, forgive this person, be kind to this person, show some compassion, something that I had never done with her all this time but didn't realize years later that that forgiveness, that level of compassion that I was allowed to experience in that moment is the same forgiveness and compassion that I've ever used to not only heal myself, but that I, I can use anywhere in the world with anyone, in any circumstance.
0: But there was a street code about forgiveness in a situation where someone shoots you, right? Yeah, I dealt with all that too.
1: Outside of all the spiritual and the beautiful side of it, yes. Once I realized that I was going to the hospital, Um, I flatlined when the ambulance came, they revived me. I left out of the apartment where I made the news as a dead body, leaving the scene, but they brought me back at the hospital. I had the whole experience that you see in the movie where you run down the hallway. I don't even know how that scene is. I always trip on how that scene seems to be a scene that everybody has that has died and come back where you, you're hovering
0: over your body and all that.
1: The, the one where you're running down the hall, you know, where the, the nurses are trying to save you and, and mm-hmm. putting them all that. Like you hear a lot of stories where, and then they, the gas hit me and <laughs> i come out 14 hours later, lost 75% of the blood in my body. I'm a whole new somebody. Cause I don't know whose blood this is. I'm not even connected to myself. Uh, my body has swollen up so big, but the real takeaway for me and that dying experience is what I got to see is the way the world moves. I got to understand the Bhagavad Gita in that moment, all the teachings, everything that I was trying to avoid, everything happened in that split second. So can you imagine like seeing life in like five seconds, like everything that you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to be, how we're to so quick and then check out and then you come back and then you're trying to articulate this. Right? It was a beautiful experience. But now life, I'm back. I'm living, I'm hurting. I got to heal. I'm paralyzed for a year. Can't run. I can't run from my thoughts. And so what I got to do, like I was blessed with the opportunity to lay in the middle of the floor and go over every thought that I ever had. I got to look at my entire life and just rewrite the story. I went through some massive surgeries. You know, It, it was a lot that happened to me. But the most important piece was the time with myself. Couldn't run couldn't walk. And following that up, I got a little more time with
0: myself because I had- Wait, I I have a question about this. So you're in a, basically, you're living in a trap house, I'm assuming. There's drugs all over the place. There's guns. Yeah. The ambulance comes, they get you. Obviously, somebody looks around and says, (laughs) what is going on here? That's illegal. What is the ramification of, of that?
1: Well, like I said, I'm at a different level in my industry. so. Instantly, you know, I in the building, I'm in an apartment building. I had lookouts, right? I had different units where I had, if anything ever happened, we can shut the whole building down. So when they heard the shot, team came down. I had them take everything out of the house. So by the time the ambulance got there, it was just me, blood, and. Did anyone want to hurt the person that hurt you? Oh, man. Yeah, that was the hard part because I was trying, I couldn't really talk. So I'm writing notes in the hospital. I'm writing notes and I'm giving, and I'm trying to explain to people like you can't touch her. She's off limits.
0: Cause that was your agreement with God.
1: Yes. And it did well, it to this date. My sister who I'm here with right now in Florida has yet to ever, she's never spoken to, and I have a son with this woman now, but never spoken. Will not, there's people that have never forgiven.
0: What was your other agreement with God? In that moment.
1: When I was laying there looking at my body asking, What's next? God told me that you will take this story, this experience, and you'll go back into the world. You'll start in the areas in the communities that look just like this where you were raised and you will share this message. You tell people the truth about compassion, kindness, love, all the things that I talk about now. And I was like, Well, God, how would I do that? And I remember God telling me, like, don't worry, I'll put you back together. And this is how I knew that I was gonna be okay, because God showed me, like, I'm gonna put you back together. But God told me, he said, remember this moment, because everything that's going to happen to you, the doctors are going to tell you what they believe based on studies, medical reports, education. He said, you're going to go through the whole process. You're going to die. This is going to happen. But I'm bringing you back and your body will be restored so you can do the work. And I was like, "Okay." So I remember when they wanted to amputate my leg and do all these different things. I refused. I said, no. And they told me, they're the ones who told me that I was in shock. Because I was talking to the, the actual doctors about
0: the God stuff, you said, "No, no, no, it's all gonna be fine." God, it God's gonna yeah. sort it all out. And I remember, like, make sure. hit him with a few more, like, twenty more CCs <laughs> of
1: morphine. He's we're losing him, <laughs> right? He's hallucinating. <laughs> yeah, uh, like, he's talking about God. Hurry up! <laughs> it's crazy, right? Like, but that's supposed to be our ultimate, like, you know, and that's what the Bible of yeah. is about—is advancing to that level of consciousness. So the whole. Premises of the Bhagavad Gita is, will you remember God at the time of death, period? At the very end of the book, that's what it has all these analogies and stories and parables and examples. But the one thing is, can we remember God at the time of death or in those moments where things seem to be so horrible? Can we remember God in those moments? When somebody breaks your heart, when somebody does the most atrocious or horrific thing to you,
0: will God be on your heart? And when you say God in that sense, because you know some people get triggered by that word, you mean love. You mean the highest expression of love and organizing power and trust in a process that's greater than your individual life. That's how I'm kind of hearing that. How, how do you? How would you interpret that?
1: Yeah, because at the, you, you know, I, I definitely feel that that's a great way to interpret it because that's what it took for me to forgive her. That's what it took for me to forgive myself was love, but. I think what helped me the God piece separates this love because now going back to the childhood, everything that I experienced, you know, usually people that have experienced trauma, sexual abuse, the person who has done that act usually equates it to love or I care, right? When you talk, when most kids that have been sexually abused, it's, oh, this is, it's a, it's a good thing. That's how, that's how they coerce them into the act. So my interpretation of love, just when you just say the word, there was no such thing Mm -hmm. because I was raised to be heartless. Love wasn't real. It was, it was a fantasy for me. When I use the term God, God helps that separates my understanding of love from the love that I knew or what I was taught. And then this higher frequency of love, this expansiveness, this limitlessness.
0: And yet still you're paralyzed from the waist down for a year, There's some recollection that God said he was going to sort this out, but you became depressed.
1: Depressed? For a moment, I thought I was suicidal, broken, devastated, guilt, shame, blame. I was everything. I went through every emotion you could think of that leaves you feeling empty and broken because I couldn't move. And I'm young. I'm looking at my body. And I remember I went from being on the top to a dude laying in the middle of the floor. I was so skinny after being shot. Like you can see my heartbeat, my shirt literally would jump off my chest every time my heartbeat, that's how
0: small I was. And there's no insurance clause for drug dealing, shooting. So how, how are you funding your life at that moment when you're recovering?
1: Well, they always tell you put something up for a rainy day. So, uh, you know, I was, was able to make sure that I was able to take care of myself. Being raised and born a vegetarian helped. Now I'm back home with mom. So mom has a real spiritual life, a real spiritual practice. So sound vibration, the music that I was listening to higher vibration, the food that I was eating prayed over, blessed over organic. She had all the self-help books, all the love help books. And so I just would have her bring
0: me stacks and I just start writing, journaling. And you said before that she encouraged you to change your story. Well, my mom was always
1: referencing. To me growing up, see things from God, a God conscious perspective. And me and my mom would battle a lot growing up because all this spiritual talk, but it didn't match the environment that we lived in. My spiritual practice, I, I couldn't see how it worked in the inner city of Detroit. She just kept reiterating and kept emphasizing to keep trying to see God in this story, like bring God consciousness into this. Right. And so when she did, when that happened, when I started, finally started to, 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 to accept that, because like you said, a lot of us hear the word God and we're like, what there's a resistance. I had a different kind of resistance around the word God or the spiritual belief, because all of this praying and practicing and doing what mom was doing, we still stayed in the bottom of the barrel. We still were in this heartbreaking city. And I'm like, well, this practice never got us out of the hood. And so when I did accept and adapt to the the, the God consciousness, I no longer saw myself as this hopeless person. And it allowed me to start looking at my story from instead of, oh, this happened to me and all the things that was happening to me. I started seeing how everything that I was doing was affecting everybody else. A lot of times when we go in in life, when we flow and things are happening, we think about what happens to us, rarely do we sit back and just contemplate on how our actions ripple out and affect how many people we've affected by how we behave. And so when I was able to sit back and I thought of all the lives that I encountered and what I was pushing in the streets and what I was doing, it shifted some things fast because I'm like, well, you're not the victim. Those are all the victims.
0: And you had stopped dealing at that point, I'm assuming? At that point, I did, but not completely. There's
1: more to the story because I knew that I was supposed to use my story to change the streets because that's what God, that was our deal. Go back. But from the street perspective, if you get shot and you go back into the streets talking about, oh, well, you know, I'm here to change now. God, that's weakness. That's, oh, that bullet changed you, huh? It softened you. So I had to use the story to my advantage. The type of crowd that I had to work with, I couldn't come in like a ballerina. Mm-hmm. I had to come in crump dancing, you know, like <laughs> stomp the yard, <laughs> right? So I had to come back almost more aggressive, more forceful than when I left. But it was only supposed to be an audition. It was only supposed to be like, it was, a, it was supposed to just be, it was a bluff. But when we have things that are still wounded inside of us that haven't been healed, it got good to me again. And then I had one more experience was like, hey, <laughs> you weren't supposed to re- <laughs> reassign to this. You were just supposed to use a story to help you having that moment. And that's when I ended up being in jail. Mm-hmm. I was to wake up where I was like, hey, remind you why I was here. So I'm in jail after being shot, paralyzed. And I did almost two years in the county jail. And so I'm in my cell and we talk about masculinity. And now I'm in here with 500 men. And we all have a version so there's 500 versions of masculinity Mm -hmm. everybody's got their own interpretation of what a man is and we're in this in in, in these walls and i use my story in such a way that it changed lives in jail and that's how i got out and i got out and that's when i started all of my mindset stuff and share necessities
0: that's a part of the 10 years you spent working on yourself the jail experience the county jail did you also get a bachelor of science and bachelor uh, Associate of Arts and Business and MBA during that time?
1: Yeah, after I got out, I knew now that I had to, so remember I told you I used that story, the street story to shift the perspective of, of that lifestyle that I was living. So now mm-hmm. I'm not living that life anymore, right? So I have to integrate back into what we call society, the noble, the everyday good person. right? In order to do that, I knew I had to put some things on my resume. So I went back to school to show that I had the discipline to show that the mindset that I had worked on myself. So I got a, yeah, I got my master's degree in business development, got a whole bunch of other certificates, certified yoga teacher, trainer, got trained in trauma informed yoga, meditation.
0: And that led to the creation of shared necessities. Yes. Could you describe it as an inner calling? Is that the same? Is that another conversation you had with God? Yeah. Well,
1: because I was supposed to go back. I was supposed to go back into the same communities. And so how that looks on it on a material level, on a surface level, is nonprofit work, charitable work, Mm -hmm. philanthropy. Mm -hmm. So that's how I did it. Through the organization, I was sharing the same tools. So basically I took my personal practice that I used to develop and rebuild myself and turned it into a curriculum for people that come from the same background. But then what you realize is as you move around the world and you get to travel and you get to see things, there's something that happens to every human being which is suffering pain we go through things we all go through the, the the flow of emotions and so i was like wow how can i create a tool or a portal that just helps enhance the daily human experience of anybody wherever you're from whatever your background is and so that's what i focused on i knew to stay away from the labels and the titles and just focus on the human experience the human being something that every human being goes through. And that's what dying showed me, that there's a part of us that we all have to experience. There's no way around it. And so that's what I've been spending the last 20 years speaking to, working on, building, growing, innovating.
0: Talk a little bit about the genesis of shared necessities. Where where did you actually implement that? I know there's a community center involved. What were some of the early days like in shared necessities?
1: I started in Detroit. I'm a parent. At the time, my boys were, were young, my mom never let us go outside without supervision because of the streets. So I would go outside with all my, you know, my kids and then what you realize is there were so many kids that didn't have male role models, dads. So I was the neighborhood dad. The hmm. housing market was so jacked up that there were so many vacant houses. So what I did was I, on our block, we had three vacant houses. I turned them all into community houses. So all the kids, we would clean them up. One house was, you know, the volleyball, and one was where I would teach kids the emotional intelligence.
0: So it started in Detroit. It's just was that was that back when they were selling houses in Detroit for like five dollars and stuff like that, like these crazy. This, yeah, deals. This, I did, yeah.
1: Well, I started this right before they made that a big thing, but yes, mm-hmm. and it brought the community together. It changed. It changed a lot. And so when I, when I realized I was on something, but I, then I knew I had to leave too. Because one thing about the streets is the streets don't evolve, streets don't evolve. Even though I was evolving, streets wanted me to still be the other version. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They didn't wanna let go of that old story. I was their hero. They didn't want they didn't, the new light version, no. <laughs> and so I said, well, you need to pack it up. And Growing up, I didn't know. I was always watching different shows that showed California and listening to Tupac talk about California. I ended up in California through a mutual friend that was going to college. I visited, saw each other on Facebook. I came to visit and I told myself, if I go to California and I don't make it, at least I'm far enough from home that I won't just go back to the same lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
1: challenged myself. I was like, you're 3,000 something plus miles away. You just can't turn around. So I said, I will have to force myself to figure it out. And like most people that come to California, you hear that story. I I tried at first, I was homeless. I was homeless in my truck. Didn't know nothing about the internet at the time. And I tried to rent a place on Craigslist, got scammed. So I ended up homeless, but I was still going to school and I had a truck. I had a Suburban, So I was living out of my truck, but I had my education. So I ended up in Venice and was taken in. It It used to be a temple there the Rose Temple on the corner of Hampton and Lincoln. And then I met a world renowned yoga teacher named Shiva Ray over at exhale when it was exhale on uh, main
0: street. So you're living in a van near Venice beach, a, a suburban, yeah. A suburban. You're hanging out with Andrew Keegan and those guys at the Rose temple.
1: They, they weren't there yet. This was,
0: it was, uh, this is before uh, that. This is back yeah. when it was a Hare Krishna yes. place. Yes. yes Got yes. it. And you, and how'd you meet Shiva Ray? They wanted to use the space cause it
1: was a big open space. And they wanted mm-hmm. to do events there. And at the time I was just going there to chant, you know, and get a little food mm-hmm. and they came in one day and I was like, while I was eating, I said, Hey, I can put together a business proposal. If you guys want to rent this space and make money. Let me show you. <laughs> so I had the skills. so I put together this proposal and they were like, man, this is amazing. And they were like, well, you want a place to stay. We have a whole room, a whole downstairs. You can live there, have an office. And that's what happened. And here we are today.
0: Wow. I know you said you didn't know anyone when you came to L.A., but what was the goal or objective that you wanted to achieve when you were coming out here? I wanted to recreate myself.
1: I, I wanted the opportunity. Now that I've been exposed to this level of, of, of consciousness and this love and this. My story was always I never I never had that. Right. The whole time was I didn't have love. I didn't have I didn't understand my emotions. I didn't know all these things, whatever. Now I have the awareness. Now I have the tools and the insight. I just need a place to, to integrate it. I needed an environment that I could integrate these tools. And so when I came to LA, it was like, I don't really know. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have an idea. And again, I didn't have the success story because I didn't even think I was going to live that long. But I knew if I could just share the experience that I had from when I died and came back, I knew that somehow that would create the pathway because I knew that was still my mission. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know any when I came to LA. I didn't, I, I didn't know of any inner city. I didn't know anybody in actual L.A. I was in Venice, Santa Monica. And I remember telling my mom, I said, but I'm supposed to go into the neighborhood. I don't know any neighborhoods in L.A. I don't know where to start.
0: Did you know L.A. had the second largest homeless population in the country? I, not at first. I learned that from
1: being at the temple on Rose because, you know, Venice was well known for the homeless. And that's mm-hmm. actually who took me in my first real community was uh, a group of homeless people on venice beach and i remember telling this community i said hey when i figure this stuff out and get my life together i'm going to come back and figure out how to support this community so share necessities actually started as just a way to say thank you as well to this homeless community and so share necessities was we were sharing the basic living essentials in that community, food was everywhere. Everybody was giving out food to the homeless, but they didn't have the basic necessities socks, boxers, you know, hide things that we use to start our day, to prepare ourselves, to have a good day, you know. And so mm-hmm. I created a, a one page platform where the people in the community could donate and I would distribute these, these, these essentials to the homeless communities. And then one, it grew really fast overnight. Didn't expect it to, but I ended up downtown. And that's when I learned about homeless children. It blew my mind because I'd never seen that. Where I come from, you know, if somebody was homeless, they'd just squat in a vacant house in Detroit. So when I learned that there was all these homeless kids, and I'm like, man, City Hall is like 10 minutes away and all these celebrities. I'm like, how is this kids on the street? I'm like, how, how are we not able to see that as a society? So it pushed me to do some research. And then that's how I learned about the homeless population in the Los Angeles School District, which being a parent snatched me off my, my foundation. I, had, I said, I got to go to work. And so that's when Share Necessities grew and I molded it. And the next thing you know, I'm in the schools because my kids were going to school. I brought my sons out here.
0: You did a GoFundMe to raise fifteen dollars or $20,000. 20. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about how that worked and what you did with the money.
1: Yeah. So I got selected to speak on social change, social justice, mindfulness, and yoga. At, uh, at this time, I didn't even know that. It, LMU, well, Marymount, had an accredited course, Mindfulness, Yoga, Social Change. And then they mm-hmm. have their an extension program. I knew somebody from the community that knew me who thought I'd be a good candidate for this particular subject matter, social change, social justice. Shared my story. It impacted. And they asked me if I wanted to be a full-time facilitator for this program. So that's what I've been doing for the past five years. And what happened was, one of the students I was in the program was the uh, property manager for the space where I have the center. And I didn't know where it was. She just had an address. Come check it out. Didn't know I was in South central. Didn't know I was in one of the historical well-known uh, blood territories. Learned some things. Streets in LA totally different than streets in Detroit, totally different protocol. But when I saw the space, and she said, yes, I didn't know how I said, you said, yes, I'm gonna figure this out. And so I could have just opened the space the way it was. And I said, no, you have to be able to create an experience where even if nobody understands what you're talking about, that when they come in this little, little 500 square foot room, that just being in the space itself can give a person an experience that they can remember. Right. And he's like, well, how do you do that? So when i raised the 20 grand i gutted the whole place stripped it down the floors everything put new ceiling new walls changed the colors i put colors you know from so you know you learn about uh, trauma and therapy you know colors different things sound all these things help so i i made this space like a holistic sanctuary and then we introduced some things i used the money to introduce the same practices that i was using so i put five eight foot by three feet, planter boxes down the whole sidewalk of the block. Because that's where the gang members used to stand. I worked it out where I can get them to give me the block when I told them what the mission was. Mm -hmm. Changed the way it looked, put organic veggies out front, started teaching people how food and the diet, all that worked. So I just used all my practice. I used the money to build the container that I was using to get my life together.
0: And you knew who to talk to in the gang, to get um, what you needed done.
1: I didn't know. So I went to the city council, I went to different different organizations that were doing similar work, but what I learned was cuz I didn't see anything near where I was supposed to open the center. And the first center I found was maybe like 10 minutes away, Brotherhood Crusade. I went in and I talked to the, the the founders of that that organization. Great men. But then they gave me the education in the background. They said, "Well, do you know where you are?" I said, "Well, now you do you know you're on the crip side." And I had one partner. they were like, well, we, you can't cross, like, you can't have kids coming from this side to that side. It's you're going to put people's life in danger. So what ended up happening was I only ended up working with the bloods, but then I had to make it clear that I'm not, this wasn't partial. I'm like, I'm not choosing a side. This is just an area where I am. And because of the gang lines and how the streets work. And so I had a meeting, I said, well, somebody take me to the, uh, who, who's the leader around here? how does this work? A guy made a phone call, a guy pulls up, (laughs) talks to me, asked me all my business, says, I'll be here tomorrow at such and such time, be here, we got to take a ride. So I met one of the OG OGs, didn't even know it, took me all the way to San Diego to meet some other top leaders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just went, I didn't know what was going to happen. So they, they, they they did their vetting process. I didn't know I was even getting vetted, but I passed the test.
0: Where was that meeting? Where did it take place? Because in my imagination, you know, thinking about movies and stuff, you just think about a house with a bunch of about 20 essays in there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was the same thing. It was like they were posted up. They were posted up
1: at the strip mall. It was like we just pulled up and got out. It was some dudes just standing out there rolling up a blunt, but didn't know that these guys were like, like back in the day, they had made headline news, but they were excited that they had somebody that was coming into the community, I was going to actually do something. They made a phone call then ended up talking to a guy from prison. They got a guy from prison who was, I was like, damn, I went all the way up to the food chain. And then once I got the, uh, the okay, they sent uh, a few guys to come and see me, but those guys didn't do what we were supposed to do, unfortunately, but we made it work. We made it work. And I just started to focus on the kids i knew who i was i was like hey guys i know how this works man i get it you've been conditioned for so long i'm not here to judge you guys i said but if i can create an opportunity for your kids to change their story Mm -hmm. and everybody resonated with that
0: you made it personal
1: yeah from the outside looking in we see people and we're like why do people do the things that they do well we don't know Mm -hmm. the story what keeps them stuck but i was like where can i shift the needle where can i give somebody else an opportunity so i was like hey what about our kids your kids they're not rooted in this I mean they live in these communities but they have an opportunity to still shift their mindset if you want them to you know succeed in life help me do this and that's what happened and so the only reason why share necessities next level community center is successful is because of the actual street community the street leaders and the community they embraced me they gave me the support that I needed as well
0: what was the data daily operation like through the center what was what was happening how many kids were coming through there
1: being an outsider i'll tell you right now like my first year was it was just my office mm-hmm. because i had to build a relationship I was, out, I was i was an outsider with a completely new concept it was almost like i gentrified this block <laughs> you know that's what they told me they said oh <laughs> we never had a, <laughs> we never had a black person come over <laughs> and gentrify the neighborhood <laughs> i was i said well hey if it's got to happen, why not us? The relationship piece was huge. People had they had to know that. I, and so, what I learned was that there had been a lot of nonprofits and different entities coming in, trying to create. But what happened was, when it comes around the grant money, people were coming in, taking the photos, promising that they would change these neighborhoods and give these kids these things. But then they would leave because it's a hard area. You know, you're dealing, you're in, the, you're on the front lines, and if you don't have that street knowledge, you don't know how to build those relationships. Where see. We didn't want to help the people that had the transportation or the means to get the services. I wanted to touch the people that walk past every day that nobody's speaking to that don't have the means. It's a different type of work. See a lot of these nonprofits and no judgment, God bless them all. But usually what you're seeing is you're seeing people that have the means mostly to get into these or get to these locations. I wanted the people that woke up when you see them walking down the street, they may have one shoe on or pants are hanging off or, you know, the ones that people, Oh no, those are the people we don't talk to. That's who I went after because that's where the real change has to start is the ones that we're seeing on the wayside. So that's what I focused on. And so a center didn't register to them. They didn't get none of the stuff that I was saying. So what I ended up doing was have to take all of the programs outside on the corner. I had to hang, I went to their little huddles. I hung out with them on the street corners.
0: Was it just you or did you have volunteers?
1: It was just me at first because I didn't know the land. I didn't want to bring anybody down there and put us in a situation where now I'm trying to explain what happened to these volunteers. Mm -hmm. So for a year, it was
0: just me. Who was your first volunteer?
1: A brother that lived upstairs from the community center. He was sitting outside, rolling a joint. And the old story kicked in my head was, oh, man, don't bother him. Mm-hmm. You know, my streetways kicked in. Cause now I'm in, I'm not in Santa Monica. I'm not in Venice. So some of my street mentality kicked in. was like, you know, there's a certain protocol. Don't bother him. Leave him be. You don't know him. But I had to remind myself, I said, no, you're not here for that anymore. You're not on that frequency anymore. You need to connect with him. And so I did. I said, excuse me. You know, of course he looked at me. <laughs> Fuck me. <laughs> He turned around like, what is this dude doing behind me? You know? And I told him, And I told him my name and I gave him my business card and come to find, we had the same last name and he had a little daughter at the time. She was a few months, told him what we were doing. He came down, he was impressed, but he was from New York, but he lived over there for a while and he loved the vision and he had a daughter, he connected. And so me and him partnered up and so he would come down and volunteer and help me. Once a week, we would distribute organic fresh produce to the neighborhood, to the community, to the families. We understood, you know, I understood through my own journey that, you know, there's a direct correlation between the food we eat and our emotions, you know, our emotions and our, our mindset.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I just started with the basics, food.
0: And I looked at a photo on your website and you have, there are many group photos with it looks like lots of volunteers, lots of kids, lots yeah. of activities. So it really looks like it really grew
1: yeah it grew, and a lot, and there's a mix there's photos of the school events you know because i'm still working I was still working at the schools at the time, so you got the school events, and then you do have a lot of the, the community events. I do have a whole album of just stuff that was happening in south Central um, It grew like I said, it took a couple years to to earn that trust, to get past those wounded stories of abandonment, and I didn't want the community to feel like I was coming in there to save them. I wanted to give and gift the community with the same blessing that I had was when I found myself, when I saw the value of myself, I began to move different. I began mm-hmm. to think different. And that's the gift that I wanted to bring to the community.
0: And that led to mm-hmm. the formation of mind elevation as well, where you help people rewrite their past trauma.
1: Yes. I consider myself a trauma expert without going and getting all the credentials. And I'll tell you why, because some of the things that I've overcome, even the experts couldn't tell me. They couldn't give me the answers. When I was going to all the counseling, when I was seeing some of the best therapists, you know, my mom always found a way to get me to some of the best. They couldn't answer my questions, right? They didn't have the solutions. And I was like, well, I'm going to learn. I want to fill in the blind spots. The only way to do it was I had to put myself out there. And I'm like, Arjuna, you showed up 110% back in those streets of Detroit to do shit that you knew wasn't of value, that served no purpose other than mm-hmm. the ego. So I was like, now that you're here on this plane where you can help change lives by the thousands, and you want to come up with a story about why you can't? I was like, no, 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 no. Let's get out of here. And I knew one thing was that love. And the two ingredients that I used was the forgiveness and the compassion that I got to experience when I was laying on that floor dying. That's the same energy that I had to bring to this community. Mm. Because when I saw everybody that reminded me of the old me, you know, there was a little the story, the judgment. Just in that, it can change the frequency. It can change the way that young brother who's coming up the street sees
0: you and feels you. If you could go back before you got shot, right, to 19, 18-year-old Arjuna, Mm -hmm. have a conversation with him, knowing everything you know now, what would you tell him? If I could have just played with the
1: concept of loving myself a little sooner, I believe everything happened the way it's supposed to happen. But if I had to go back and answer the question, if I could have just played with loving myself a little sooner because that's really what this whole journey has taught me, right? That's what all these experiences, this opportunity, all the opportunities before this have taught me was that it wasn't until I decided to love myself that opened these doors, these opportunities. So I just would have asked myself, Hey, let's play with this love concept, self-love concept a little sooner.
0: What does success look like for Arjuna
1: now? Creating
0: an opportunity
1: to expand this knowledge, these tools and gifts, and, you know, with, with the growth of technology and the capabilities that we have, that's where I'm, I am looking to take share necessities to a platform where what I've learned through all these years and being a parent is that we say everything starts within first self, but then we also say everything starts at home. And so from working in schools, working with teachers, working with correctional facilities, working on the ground, the one common denominator and working in, in private schools, affluent communities, the one thing that is missing is the relationship between parent and child. And I don't mean parents don't love their kids, but something that I even know in my own journey was that a lot of us are in the position of survival. We're trying to survive, we're trying to thrive, we're trying to get things done. But what that does. When you don't have that time to connect with your child is you learn your child through the programs the schools the things that we put our kids in most of the times parents what i was learning is that parents were find out about their kids through our program or through a teacher what was being reported back and so i wanted to create a, a platform where i can get these tools in front of parents and in front of the kid at the same time so what we did at sharing accessories at the center what we it wasn't a drop off center. You couldn't bring your child unless you were there. It was a hard, painful rule that I held to, but I knew that was the missing piece. And so, what it did was when the parents started seeing their kids in this way for the first time, literally now, all you see is the kids and the parents walking around. There, there's more engagement with the fathers and their daughters or the fathers and their sons. And so, when I saw, and then from talking to, parents in the, in the affluent communities, a lot of the kids were would share when I would teach in the elementary schools with me is that, well, you know, mom and dad is always busy or they always had sports. So there was this gap where the parents aren't able to really articulate or connect with what the kids are learning because a lot of us as parents didn't have these tools and skills when we were kids. We know they're valuable. We put our kids in those positions and we just hope and encourage them to keep going and doing the best that they can. But it's even far more effective when you understand that process that your child is going through from an emotional intelligence perspective, because now you're able to hold the space and support your children when they go through their emotions and the things that they got to go through that we all went through because you have the, you know what it looks like now, right? You're not sending your kid to the room every time you get it now. Oh, this means stop, take a moment. Let's connect wire, you know, breathe like things that help us connect to ourselves. So, i wanted to create a platform where i can get these again human fundamentals in front of everybody regardless of what you look like where you're from what your status is
0: that's beautiful i think that's a great place to to stop we've, yep. we've made it through the end of the tunnel <laughs> <laughs> now you're out here shining your light which is awesome and such a great story i like to ref- just offer a few reflections at the end of these conversations, just to really bring it back around, not necessarily to tie it up in a bow, but just to bring it back around to how it all started. And, you know, it's interesting that y- your favorite activity was just being outdoors, but I think being outdoors was really a byproduct of you wanting to escape pain and feeling of discomfort. And now that's what you do for kids and for the unseen you know the the invisible populations is you help them escape that pain give it a little reprieve even if just for a moment even in, in their own home because a lot of kids don't feel seen by their parents yes. and caregivers and you help to bridge that connection and i just love how when when we talked about what you would say to young arjuna i'm not sure as much you can say that can offer the value of the experiences that you have had to go through and those conversations with god that you had to have in order to find your true purpose your your true calling okay. and i think that's a reminder for all of us that there's just this purpose in everything especially the stuff that you don't want to do you don't want to have to do and that's it's also the the premise of the bhagavad gita is the route to self-realization is Directly through the th- the very thing you don't want to have to do. Yeah. So you've 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 embodied all of that, and it's just it's amazing to, to know that you're out in the world doing the work you do, and that I am fortunate enough to be able to call you a friend, and we've crossed paths, and you know you just never know what somebody's backstory is, <laughs> especially when they're from Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> especially nowadays, we're talking a lot about race and white and black, and I think you know if you have a big tall presence, like yourself or myself, you know, people look at us and they have preconceived ideas about who we are, where we come from, what we know, even what our name could be. No one would ever guess my name was Light. No one would ever guessed your name was Arjuna. Yeah. And what all that, where all that comes from, because I have a whole story behind my my name as well. So yeah. I think hearing these stories, is just going to help people sort of be more open-minded and rethink those preconceived ideas about who people are and where they come from and 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 also the value of experiences that someone can have from all environments every environment is either you're going to harvard and you're learning you're getting a phd or you're in the streets getting a phd but either way you're learning something that could be of value to other people and i think that's what's important so thanks brother oh uh, you're welcome you know and each day never
1: underestimate the, 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 the power of your mind just knowing all the things that you thought Mm -hmm. not even even, you know just know like you said think about the wig or the different things i've done we've all done something in our life where we've Mm -hmm. used our mind in a way where we're like but we're taught that if it doesn't align with societal norms and what's good or bad or the labels we no longer see the value in that (laughs) thought like we're like oh that was bad so i don't but some of those that thought may be bad but how did you get to like using the power of your mind so yeah each day don't underestimate the power of your mind and be open to, to it being expanded.
0: Love it. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Arjuna O'Neill. Information about Arjuna's nonprofit Share Necessities can be found at share-necessities.org. Arjuna also has an online mindset course called Mind Elevation, where he teaches the fundamental mindfulness practices for building resiliency and elevating the daily human experience. You can get more information about that at mindelevation.online. And look, if you enjoyed this conversation, I have a small favor to ask. It'll only take you about 10 seconds. Okay. So if you're listening to this on Apple's podcast app, that purple little app, can you look down at your screen, click the purple name of this show at the end of the tunnel Scroll down to ratings and reviews and just tap that star on the far right. Okay, you've just submitted a five star review, which means other people are now going to be able to discover this conversation. And if you're inspired to do just a little bit more, click that link that says write a review and leave a quick, just one line review. I like this podcast, this was great. Light's awesome. Whatever you want to say, keep it brief, but if you can spare 20 or 30 seconds do that for me, we can get these conversations out to way more people. And I truly, truly believe that the world needs more of these kinds of stories of regular people just like me and you who are overcoming the odds to live a life of service. And I've done my part in producing these episodes and I thank you in advance for doing your part by helping me publicize them. It's, this is truly a team effort. In the meantime, make sure you dig around in the archives. There are some other really incredible conversations in there. Some of the recent crowd favorites that I think you're going to like are the Sean Stevenson episode, which is number 27. Bronnie Ware, number 25. There's the Frederick Douglass episode, number 21. Edwin Raymond, who's the NYPD whistleblower. His is episode 19. And of course, Ava DuVernay, which is episode 18. So make sure that you check out some of those episodes. And as always, there are the show notes and a transcript of my interview with Arjuna at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. There, you're going to see a pop-up link to sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, which is a short and sweet daily motivational message that you'll get from me every morning at 6 a.m. Pacific time. It's actually been turned into a book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration, which is going to be coming out in 2021. So be on the lookout for that. And in the meantime, I highly, highly recommend signing up for them if you are inspired to do so. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please text them to me at 323-405-9166. And guys, thanks again for taking the time to listen and to share this interview and to leave a review. Please make sure you tag me on social media. I'm at Light Watkins and that way I can shout you out. And otherwise, I will see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again. Just go to lightwatkins.com, you can sign up for free, and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.